0: but it kind of made me who I am today. Wyoming has it all. Breathtaking hikes, kid-friendly museums, two of the coolest national parks in the country. The truth lies west. Discover yours at TravelWyoming.com. We're
1: going to start off with cracking the acorns first. Like the, right there, the skin just slid off. See how perfect that is? Just like that.
2: I'm peeling off some of the skin. That's uh, after you shell them, there's a skin on the acorn that you have to remove before you can uh,
1: make it into flour. So after we get the, the acorn like this, what we're gonna do is for the ones that are all done, we're gonna start to make them into a flour which is still not edible yet because they still have tannic acids. And then after then we have the flour, then we'll start to leach it to take out all the bitters. So, um, can you imagine our ancestors did this every single day? Not just even to make a small amount, but to feed the entire village.
3: Listening to Outside In, a show about the natural world and how we use it. I'm Sam Evans Brown. And you're hearing Vincent Medina and Louis Trevino grinding black oak acorns in their backyard in San Lorenzo, California, and teaching kids from their community how to process the nuts. Vincent and Lewis are partners in many senses of the word. Partners in food, in business, and in life. They're both Ohlone people, and acorns are at the heart of their
1: story. makam Vincent Medina to everybody. My name is Vincent Medina. My family is indigenous to the East Bay, which is where we're at right now.
2: In Kai. My name is Louis Trevino. I'm Aloni. My family comes from the Carmel Valley in the Monterey area.
3: They're also partners in their shared purpose of reviving Ohlone languages and increasing the visibility of Ohlone culture. The Ohlone are a group of around 50 tribes, each with their own related language. Ohlone land stretches from the coast of San Francisco through Monterey Bay down to the Salinas Valley. The Bay Area of California, where Vincent and Louis live, is a place Ohlone people have called home for thousands of years. A place they continue to call home. Audio for this documentary was gathered before the pandemic, and it was produced by Michelle Macklem, Zoe Tennant, and Vincent and Lewis. We'll start in Vincent and Lewis's hometown in San Lorenzo, near Oakland, California.
1: Well, where we're at right now, we're we're in the marshlands. So traditionally, this whole area is a great willow thicket, where our people would go and get basketry materials, be able to um, get tuli, be able to gather pickle weed, gather salt, um, shellfish, uh, go fishing. This area, it's, it's long been lived in, you know, that's why it's so irking when people say that this is a new world because this place is very old, you know, and it's been lived in for, you know, forever. world around us has changed no question about it and we're not far from downtown Oakland where you know there's city and then across the bay from here is San Francisco which is just exploding right now with tech and with gentrification also our planes we're on a plane route because Oakland Airport it's about five miles away from here but right here where we're at you don't have to look far to see nature even though the city's all around us we hear crows and geese and mallards, and then we hear planes right after them as well. It's a reminder of just how complex it is. The East Bay, it's this incredibly uh, diverse area with ranges and valleys. In so many ways, the landscape of the East Bay gets embedded within our language itself.
2: Our Indian languages, they connect us in a way that is very difficult sometimes otherwise to do. We have sounds in our Ohlone languages that don't occur in English, and there are sounds that occur in English that don't occur
1: in our Ohlone languages. These highs and these lows that are there, these contrasts, there's all of these hard and soft sounds that make it what it is. There are these long vowel sounds that are there. Like this phrase that I love, which is Hem men Horshe Nomo which is everything here on our earth is beautiful. And so we are in many ways allowing our tongues
2: to be taken over by our languages and you have to give yourself to it
1: in order for that to work properly. An example of this is when we talk about the seasons being described. You know, during the season that we've just left of springtime, we call it huyu which means the earth has begun to flower on us. And during this time of flowering, our ancestors would celebrate this abundance of flowers. They would make flower crowns for themselves. Instead of talking to each other, they would sing to each other. Just because it's such a beautiful time of abundance, you know, but it also means that it's happening to us. Like we're part of that blossoming as well. And... When you fall
2: into the system of sounds and the system of grammar and syntax that is in line with what our people from before used every day and thought every thought in and sung every song in, then in some ways we sort of fall into this track that is in line with what they did. And then we can begin to think in ways that they thought and to see landscapes in the way that they saw them to relate to plants in the way that they related to them, and to communicate with one another the way that they did.
1: You want to talk about that one?
2: Sure, well, we can start. you want to give Chochenyo that I can give the Rumsen for the same, or we can do the other way. Sure. In Rumsen, we call acorn yuk. We call it yukish. Uh, to crack the acorn, we say pak, and once they're cracked, they're pakacht. We would say pakiste. Yeah, so the acorn flour after it is crushed, to crush it is tum, and so it becomes tumucht, crushed.
1: For us, it would be atko, which means to broken into pieces. Acorn soup is a tewen. See, that word is weird. Ours yeah. is pamu. <laughs> Our acorn bread is pulum. Shetanen. Our acorn bread is Shetnin.
2: As a child, I was given a small black notebook. And at that time, our family didn't have a lot of knowledge except for who we are. Um, a lot of language had gone. But I was given this little black notebook And in it were these word lists from Ohlone and Chumash languages. My grandmother, Mary Lou, she told me to pay special attention to the Monterey column because that's our language, that's us. And I remember just reading it over and over again and getting the sense that there was this language that is ours. And even though it was very new to me, it wasn't at all foreign or unfamiliar that it was our family language, and yet it was a very short list of words. And for a long time, I thought that that's all that there was. I still have that notebook. And it seemed so small and yet so, like, enormous as a child to see that it sparked a lot of curiosity, like, what else was there?
1: Growing up, I uh, I always knew that I'm a Ohlone, that I'm from this place, that my family has always lived here. That's something that I grew up proud about. And as a teenager, I started to see these word lists, these very simple word lists that were in uh, my language, Chochenyo. And those are really my first real glimpses into our language. Vince and I
2: met at a conference called Breath of Life, which brings... California Indian communities without speakers together to go through those archival materials. So, for our Rumson language, Isabel Meadows, uh, she was recorded the most. And uh, she was born in Carmel Valley, her mother was born in the mission her grandmother and her great-grandmother, who she knew were born in a pre-contact world. (laughs) Isabel spent the last five years of her life until she passed away in 1936 in Washington, D.C., being recorded, telling all of these stories.
1: Well, there's there's a lot of really big feelings that come up with, these old recordings so when our people were were sharing this information it was at a time that was physically unsafe for indian people to share this with people outside of our community john peabody harrington he was um, an anthropologist and a linguist from the smithsonian institute in washington dc and he was especially focused on california indian languages primarily working with um, our community, the the larger Ohlone community, and also the Chumash community. And he also developed these really long-standing, um, you know, I don't know what to call them necessarily, but working relationships, I guess, with people who he called informants, like Isabel Meadows, right? You know, and for such a long time, Harrington would be the one that would get all of this recognition and credit for this work, which, you know, we don't want to leave him out and say that his work was invaluable, but we put the the recognition on those people who were sharing that information because without those people, none of this would be possible. And, uh, I mean, there wouldn't be any archives anywhere unless Native people wanted to share and give testimony to all of these things. They did it on their own, and we deserve to give them credit for that.
2: And in those archived materials, our people recorded so
1: much of our language. They even teach us you know how to properly pronounce our words, you know, how to borrow from neighboring languages. They teach us our stories so much about our foods, our songs. about dance time, how beautiful that regalia was. They talk about it. They talk about you know, the family structures, our values, um, our traditional religion, our old stories. They talk about the stars. Sometimes there's gossip in there, you know, people talking about, you know, other people. Like, and not always in bad ways, but sometimes even in fun ways. Mm-hmm. Don't you have stuff about uh, some people oversalting their food? Yeah, put too much salt. Isabel,
2: <laughs> Isabel says that there was a woman who called Isabel flat-chested, and she said that she was more, she was more flat-chested than I was. <laughs>
1: <laughs> setting the record straight. I love it, you know, because I could totally identify with so many people in my family using that exact same tone, you know, over uh, almost a hundred years later.
2: All of those things, everything that they could remember, was written down. All of a sudden that notebook, that little pinhole that I was peering through just opened up and it has become, like, our central, like, core thing that we go to to learn about those old days those archived materials and our living elders, that's that's how we know the way. Isabel spent every single day for those five years being recorded. She lived across the street from the Smithsonian. The latest note that I've seen from her, she's in Gallinger Hospital. It's two weeks before she passes away, and she's still going over pronunciations for us. There's some, at least 80,000 pages of notes that she's left for us, if not more. And in these, she talks about food. She talks about our acorn bread pulum, and she talks about its place in our creation, and also about the pulum that she ate as a young person. And she talks about exactly that texture, that jelly like consistency on the inside, and how when it is baked, it gets this crisp edge on the outside. Um, and she talks about just how delicious it is. She says that she wishes that she could have some right then when she's being recorded. <laughs> And she's thousands of miles away from home, and the people that she is describing having made it passed away a long time before then. And yet this there's this imprinted memory of the flavor and the texture and the people who made it, and a real longing for that. So when we read about that acorn bread, you really want to... You want to make it, and you want to feed her, and you want to try it, too. Um, and so that's what we did. And the way to feed those people is to feed our family who are here today, to revive our language, and to make story again in the world.
3: Outside In we will be right back after a break. This is Outside In, a show about the natural world and how we use it. I'm Sam Evans-Brown. Let's pick up the story of Vincent Medina and Louis Trevino, Ohlone people in the Bay Area of California, and the acorn at the heart of it all.
1: I think uh, the best starting point for people to learn about Ohlone food is acorn bread. And the reason why is because it's one of our most traditional foods. It's a food that goes way back into the ancient. And... It's one of those foods that's so pure, takes so much work, so much time, so much intention, and you can only make it uh, when the acorns are are in season. And during fall time is uh, when our community goes out and goes acorn gathering. And after the acorns are dried, which take you know several months, then they have to be processed and made into a flour. Which means the tannic acids have to be taken out, they have to be leached, they have to be peeled, they have to be shelled, you know, they have to be ground in a mortar into a flour. And after this long process, which takes, you know, a lot of work, then the acorn flour is ready. But then the bread takes an extra step. It has to be at the right consistency, rolled and then baked. And then after it's made, It has this delicious taste that is crisp on the outside, soft and gelatinous on the inside, sweet, slightly sweet, but also it's just so full of like these flavors that we know all of those generations before us, I'm like right. all those generations before us, you know, that they would eat. And when I eat the acorn bread, there's something that's there when you think about all of those family members before you eating that same exact flavor. There's like a connection that you can have through taste, you know.
2: We are taught that we should have acorn with all of our foods in that uh, creation time. To have acorn bread with each of our foods is a verb just for that, which is moot, which is to have whatever food
1: with your acorn it's similar for some cultures like having rice for part of the diet or for other cultures having wheat you know acorn is that staple for us and i think when i eat acorn there's like a lot of memories that just flood throughout my mind throughout my body i remember the first time i ever had it i i just um i just remember i just didn't know what to say because you know, for so long, so many of us have just read about it, you know, because it's been such an inaccessible food for our people. It takes so much work. And when we get to eat it, it's just, it, it gives us some clarity, you know, into how delicious that old world tasted. I know that when
2: we made black oak acorn bread for my grandmother, it was her first time having that acorn bread. And I remember we were there eating with her. And she treated it like a very fine, delicate thing when she ate it. And it was exactly that. It was exactly the meaning that we give acorn because it sustained our people and because today it is a treasure to us. It feeds us in a way
1: that's more than just physical. In the old days, all around, I mean, we just have to look to the name of the city, Oakland to, you know, to see that it's called Oakland because of all of the oak groves that have been, and those have been nurtured by our people for generations. Um, we taste from those same trees that we know our, our ancestors did. We taste the the acorns from those same trees. The truth is, though, that with the city around us today, those oak groves are becoming increasingly threatened. We can go up into the hills and gather some acorn, but it's harder and harder for us. A lot of the traditional ways, those practices, like our language, our, our stories, I wondered um, why those things weren't being practiced. And I started to ask my family. They immediately would tie in the suppression of those ways to colonization. That suppression that hit us, everything was attempted to be, you know, erased. The California mission system was the very first stage of colonization here in California. There were churches as well as uh, these places where the Spanish were trying to forcibly bring in Indian people to, to try to remove our culture. Now, from our perspective, as Native people, what happened was when our homeland was invaded, the Spanish forcibly removed our people from those old villages, forced our people into these really claustrophobic, close-quartered missions where people couldn't leave. And, you know, and then when you read the popular uh, narrative that's out there, it it just adds salt to the wound because they make it seem like none of those things happened. And the narrative that's often out there is that Indian people chose freely to go into the missions. However, evidence and the oral tradition of our families they they disprove that. I used to work at Mission Dolores, uh, which was one of the missions that that mine and Lewis's ancestors were both forced to be in. And I worked there for seven years trying to change that story, to change that narrative. I worked as a curator there, a museum director. And it just got so hard because I was always reminded by that sadness. You know, if I went upstairs, I saw those old diaries that the Spanish kept of the death records. And you just see page after page after page of mass graves. You know, you you see those accounts of the Spanish abusing people. You see the accounts of the violence of the humiliation that people had to endure. In these missions, every aspect of Native culture was attempted to be changed. Our language was banned, Um, our religion was banned, our traditional political leadership was banned, marriage structures were were changed, Um, people couldn't pray in that traditional way. If people went to go and gather traditional foods, they would often be severely punished, flogged, uh, kept in stocks, beaten. Growing up, there was so little that was around. Uh, we we would have to go to the missions to feel really any kind of connection to our culture, and you know that's like, you know, Jewish people going to Auschwitz, you know, to to feel connection in a lot in so many ways because those missions they. They attempted to destroy so much.
2: When we talk about those times with my Grandma Mary Lou, about when these things stopped being done for a time, she says that they were put away for that time. And she says that they would be put away so that our family, those older people, could protect their children. And our family was afraid, our elders today tell us, that those elders who they heard use language but who did not teach them language did that they made that choice to deny their children language for a time because they were afraid that if our neighbors and if the people at school uh, had evidence and could prove that our children were indian people and learning these things that our family would be wiped off of the face of the earth is what our elders tell us because they saw exactly those things happen to other people and so my grandmother says that those things were put away so that we could be kept safe and that now that we are in a time where we are safe uh, when it is safe to do these things that now those things are still there for us to take out again You made me think of a story that Isabel tells of a time when her mother, Loretta, prepared a panol, a seed soup, entirely from tarweed, which is a seed that we gather. And tarweed is a black, oily seed, and so the soup was black and oily, and it had a strong perfume smell. And there was a, a man uh, who lived nearby, one of our traditional doctors, named Fortunato He was born before the mission time, and he was forced into the Carmel mission, and he survived it. And she brought this soup to him, and she said to him um, to take this whole bowl, this whole basket of soup, and to have it. And it excited him. He was a very serious man in all the stories, but it excited him. And he says, yes, I'll eat it, and let's eat it together and let's eat it and let, us, let it make us happy uh, like it did before. And that's what we do, is we, these foods heal us, they heal our families, they make us think of those times before, those happy times, and they help us to heal that time in between when it got very hard.
1: Uh, so the ones that are vegan, they
2: we are here at Café Loni at 2430 Bancroft Way in Berkeley. We are getting all set up right now for our lunch tasting. These are violas and nasturtium as well. California hazelnuts that were roasted, wet roasted with uh, salt from San Francisco Bay. That's a red abalone shell from the central coast of California, San Francisco, Monterey Bay.
1: We run Cafe Ohlone in Berkeley, which is the first Ohlone restaurant in modern times. It's something that we've, we've needed for a long time in our community. So you walk through these very narrow passages full to the ceiling of books, it's an old bookstore that makes me feel really good walking through here. We created the space, it's in the back of a bookstore in a patio, where we converted the space to reflect our culture, reflect our values, reflect our aesthetics. Unfortunately, for such a long time, California cuisine has been associated with European cuisine that will sometimes embrace farm-to-table traditions. California cuisine is not anything that has an avocado on it or goat cheese pizza, you know? Like, But what that does in action for us as Native people is it erases us from that story. The truth is that California has these rooted food traditions, and so much of this is shaped by the landscape of California. You know, it's full of valleys and full of, you know, ranges, mountain ranges. And so we push back against uh, California cuisine as it's presented often, which is embracing those Western ingredients. And we say California cuisine is what's indigenous to California. your patience. We're just about ready to get started for our Thursday tasting, but before uh, everybody comes back, we'd like to just welcome you to sit wherever you'd like around our communal Redwood table, which comes from a fallen East Bay Redwood, close to our family's old villages here in the Oakland Hills. We um, also invite you, if you're chilling, to wrap yourself in one of those serapes.
3: that are on each seat. The pandemic struck after most of this documentary was recorded. Cafe Ohlone has closed, for now. This final part of the story was recorded by Vincent Medina and Luis Trevino in their home near Oakland, California.
1: Testing, one, two, three. Testing, testing,
2: testing. We're here in Hulkin, in San Lorenzo, California, the East Bay of the San Francisco Bay Area. It is coming upon winter solstice.
1: In early March, when we saw how serious the pandemic was becoming here in California and across the world, globally, we immediately went to our elders and we asked our elders what we should do. They have so much wisdom and the eldest generation of our family also survived through the end of the last pandemic, which was the Spanish flu. And they told us that we should take this very seriously. And as a result, we closed Café Ohlone.
2: And even in those archives that were recorded in the 20s and 30s, our people talk about times of pandemic and epidemic. Diseases that came here to California with colonization were devastating to our people who had
1: no specific ways of treating those illnesses. So over this history, we know that there's ways from our elders to be able to do our best to make sense and survive through it. We also know that during
2: those times, our people looked after one another. And so we've transitioned into this time of, of a lot of community. We've turned inward right now. And it is a, a very difficult time, but it's also a very beautiful time because of that togetherness.
1: Both of our languages right now are seeing so much hope and so much strength that's connected to more people speaking uh, our language becoming more common. We've shifted our language classes entirely over Zoom, which it turns out works really well, you know. I feel like the pandemic showed us all like different ways of doing things. We've had 32 solid weeks of uninterrupted language work, and that's it's been so wonderful. In our classes we have one of our elders, our auntie Dottie, who's going to be ninety years old, and she's there, as well as babies who are being named in Chochenyo right now, listening in from the earliest months of their life.
2: A baby came in the morning after he was born. The mother zoomed in from the maternity ward. Very <laughs> <he> well. <was>. Right. <laughs> of course, during this time, the work of Café Ohlone has continued. Café Ohlone is more than a physical space. Uh, It's an idea, it is a community, it is the restoration of our traditional foods. It is the safety, security, and celebration of our living Ohlone community.
1: So we started to think of how we could be able to keep this public component of Cafe Ohlone. And what we came up with was um, these curated meal boxes. There are these uh, cedar and redwood uh, handmade boxes from selvage cedar, selvage redwood from right here in the Bay Area. And when you open up one of these boxes, there's foods that we gather uh, right here in our homelands. Beginning with acorn, this uh, delicious black oak acorn soup, sometimes acorn bread or bay nut truffles with watercress and dried California strawberries. And also our hazelnut biscuits, which are delicious and savory. Our alone salad. Things like local chanterelles and oyster mushrooms with a side of walnut oil. Shellfish, mussels, and clams. They get cooked in a kombu seaweed broth with the seaweed harvested not too far from here and with lots of pickleweed that comes from the marshes and the bay. A dessert course such as Lewis's uh, now famous acorn flower brownies or hazelnut flower brownies that are so rich and so good. And
2: this is to continue the work of educating the public even during this time that they know this place here in the East Bay and the Bay Area All the way down to Monterey and Big Sur continues to be a lonely land and continues to be the homeland
1: of our families. Always have faith that better days are ahead of us. Ewe tu hihuyuish. Brighter days are ahead. This moment that we're in right now, we'll get through it, it will pass. You know, even for us, it's good just to remember that because. It helps us get through uh, moments where this pandemic feels like it just isn't ending at all you know but to know that brighter days are always ahead of us that's something that keeps us sane and makes our hearts feel good
3: This episode of Outside In was produced by Michelle Macklem, Zoe Tennant, Vincent Medina, and Louis Trevino, with support from Justine Paradise, Taylor Quimby, and me, Sam Evans Brown. Erica Janik is our executive producer. Special thanks to Alicia Adams Potts, Deidre Green, Tina Medina, Dominic Galvin, Angelina Maravilla, Maria Camara, and the Rumson Language Learning Community. For links to more of Michelle and Zoe's work, and for Vincent and Lewis's work at Cafe Oloni, visit outsideinradio.org or check out the show notes. Music in this episode came from Blue Dot Sessions. Our theme music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. Outside In is a production of New Hampshire Public Radio.